Well, thank you very much, Bethel Church. Let me tell you, this is a real treat. Uh, I appreciate the little walk down memory lane, Steve. That was so fun. It just reminds you, it doesn't matter where you're at. If you're standing in line at an ice cream place, the Lord may be up to something and introducing you to someone. I think I led you to the Lord that day, did I not, Steve? I'm trying to just, those are exciting times. You know, in uh, one of our times together over lunch, Steve blessed me with a gift. He threw me his book and he said, yeah, I wrote a little book here. You can have it if you'd like. And I was touched by the gesture. And I'll be honest, wasn't, no offense, planning on reading it. But uh, uh, it was sitting there on my desk and Steve and I were getting together again. And I thought, oh man, he's going to ask me what I thought of his book. I should at least scan, you know, a few pages so I can claim I read some of it. And, and wouldn't you know, I, I started to read it, and uh, Steve's, God's word through Steve so impacted my life, I couldn't put it down. The, the beauty of God and our enjoyment of God's beauty through seeing him and all that we do and uh, participate in. I was just so marked. Uh, so, some of these themes had been percolating in my soul, and Steve just ministered to me so profoundly. I actually uh, bought copies for our entire staff and took our whole staff through Steve's book. And so our, the Compass Church has been blessed by Bethel Church in a number of ways, through the book, through Steve's ministry, and for me to be here and to be with all of you is just such such a treat. I love this church. And uh, not, by the way, beautiful improvement. I was here a while back before this construction was done, and I just can't believe to, to all of you who are so generous in, in your uh, giving to see this place built for God's glory. Well done. Well done. Well, yeah, I'll join you in that. I wanted to... Um, begin, if you'll allow me, with a little, little story. This was a number of years ago. My, I have two daughters. They were little at the time. And I needed to steal, borrow, one of their dolls. I was preaching on, in the Christmas season, and I thought, I need a baby Jesus as a prop. You know, I'm going to wrap it in swaddling clothes, but the head will be exposed, and so I need uh, a doll. And my girls and my wife weren't home on this particular day, and it was right before I was going to preach, so I was down in the doll box sorting through which one I could swipe. And uh, some of them I knew right away, I'll be in big trouble if I take that doll. You know, I was aware of the special place it had in the heart of one of my girls, and I'm, ooh, not that one, not that one, not that one. I kept digging, you know, which one is safe? Until I found, uh, well, this doll. I, I came across a very ugly doll, actually. Uh, this little doll uh, is kind of like a beanbag. It's got no real feet, just kind of dangling things there. But the face was cute, and so I thought to myself, this will work. Uh, wrapped in swaddling clothes, and I, and I thought about it. I go, I know, I've never, ever seen either of my daughters ever play with this doll. And so I'm certain it's a safe bet. The problem was is that it had long hair, you know, and 
baby Jesus, actually no babies have long hair. So I, I go, I got I to gotta trim the hair, which I thought I could do rather easily. So I grabbed the scissors and started snipping. Did not go well, uh, honestly. So I snipped more and more and more. Here, this is what it looks like now. I, I have a picture we can put, uh, yeah. I'm out of a horror movie at this point, you know. I'm like, wow, this is not good. But I'm like, well, I'm going to run with it. And so I wrapped this new Jesus in swaddling clothes. And right then, my family came home. You're all smarter than I am. I was sure I was safe in this moment. Uh, My eldest daughter came up, and I'm like, hey, I gave a haircut to this doll. She's like, I don't care about that doll. I'm like, good. My my younger daughter came up, and I'm like, hey, uh, I gave a haircut to the doll. I don't care about that doll. You see it coming, don't you? You're smarter than (laughs) My wife comes up, Jenny! Jenny! is the name of her favorite doll. Can you believe it? This doll is an antique dating back to the days of my wife's childhood. And she had, yeah. We're still married though, right? And she forgives me. Grace is an amazing thing. But she was horrified and she couldn't believe that I had chopped Jenny's hair off. Well, I learned an important lesson that day. I learned a lesson about assessing the value of a thing. You know, when it comes to discerning how much something is worth, there's a lot of opinions out there, but only one that counts. The one that counts is the one to whom the thing belongs. You know, my daughters are like, yeah, destroy it. I don't care. It's worthless. But my wife, and her opinion is the one that matters because it was her doll. She said, no, I'm telling you, you destroyed a priceless doll of mine. And friends, that matters because today we're going to talk about what is the value of a human being. You know, we're around human beings all the time, whether it be at work or in our neighborhood or in our family. What is the value of you? You know, this question, I'm going to put Jenny here. You you can look at her and just remember, though she looks pretty pathetic, and we do sometimes too, we are priceless to the one we belong to. And who do we belong to? Jesus Christ. You know, the Lord made us all, and so as our maker, we belong to him. But those of us who are Christians have been bought with a price. Christ paid his very lifeblood to redeem us, to rescue us, and he claims us as his own. And because we belong to him, he and he alone can declare what we're worth. And so let's study that together, shall we? I want to turn with you to an absolutely precious passage. I'm sure it's one that most, if not all of you, are well familiar with. It's Luke 15. If, we, if I were to have one chapter of the Bible, arguably this might be it. It's just so powerful. In this one chapter, Jesus gives three parables back to back that all center on this notion of what is a human worth. Let's remember the context, shall we? In the very first verses of Luke 15, uh, we see where Jesus was speaking. 
It says, sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them? So Jesus told them this parable. These scribes, these Pharisees, are having a reaction to Jesus' decision to dine with notorious sinners. And Jesus, seeing the problem, seeing their reaction, he says, oh man, you guys need a parable. No, you need two. No, you need three, Jesus says. What's the problem? The problem is that these scribes, these Pharisees, are discerning the value of these sinners. They weren't very godly. They weren't very spiritually successful. And as a result of a lack of impressive quality in their lives, these Pharisees, these scribes, had concluded that they're worthless, that they're an embarrassment. I would have nothing to do with them. And yet Jesus pursued them. Jesus loved on them. Friends, what we see here is a contrasting system where the world's system is all about merit. If you're important, you better prove it by what you accomplish. If you matter, you better have career success, monetary success, athletic success, physical beauty that's impressive. You better have relational families that are perfect. That, you know, success, that's what makes you matter. And this is a system we live in. And a lot of us uh, fall a little short of that perfection. And so we are in danger of concluding, as the scribes and Pharisees did, that people who don't have spiritual success or some measure of success just don't matter. What we find with Jesus is that God's evaluation of who we are and how much we matter is grace-based. And as you're aware, grace is undeserved merit and love and favor in God's eyes. And so this is a battle. It's a constant tension that we all face as we wrestle with this. uh, The world tells me this is what matters, but God whose only, only opinion matters because we belong to him. He says otherwise. One, one little place you can experiment with this. Maybe you, some of you are going to take a summer vacation and you're on an airplane. Or maybe in the next year you'll be on an airplane. Here, try this out. You just want to test if you matter. Decide that, you know what? Uh, the lavatories I've heard are better in first class. So I'm going to use that one. Well, that's fun. You walk up to the sacred curtain that separates the riffraff from uh, the first class customers, and you just kind of push the curtain aside. You'll notice they're being given hot towels and little hors d'oeuvres to serve, stuff we never get. And uh, the, the flight attendant will come to you and say, uh, please step back and away from the curtain. And at that point, you say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm not going to sit up there. I was just going to use the lavatory. I heard it's better than ours. And so she will then, or he will then, get firm with you and say, get away and get back to your seat, you know. And at that moment, you just have this awareness that the little special curtain divides the the really important from the, the rest of us. Anybody feel what I'm talking about? There are subtle reminders all the time that we are not as important as they. And this is a battle that we have and one Jesus wants to help us with. If I could remind you, 
I, I see two applications of, of this message as we press in. One is understanding our own value in God's eyes, and the other is understanding the value of those you live with and work with and are in your neighborhood, because this applies to them as well as you. All right, so three parables that Jesus tells. I want to make just a comment. All three of the parables have the same main point. That main point is that people, that sinners matter to God. In fact, all of them have something that's lost, but that that lost thing becomes found. And when it's found, there is a party in heaven. Remember, the angels rejoice in the redemption and the salvation of this lost thing. It's a reminder that at the moment of our conversion, when we're made right with the Lord, a party in heaven erupts. Boy, you want to know that you're valued to God. How about thinking about that? A party among the angelic hosts in celebration of your redemption? Yeah, that's what the Bible says. So all three of the parables have this same main point, but I am going to highlight some diversity in the stories. I do believe Jesus told three different stories because he wanted us to three, see three nuances of this central principle, and it'll be fun to look at them with you. The first of the three parables is the parable of the lost sheep. Uh, I'm going to read in verse 4. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. You know, we're all familiar, many of us at least, with this beautiful parable of the lost sheep. Uh, one of the things Jesus was such, uh, so brilliant at was using dynamics that were readily apparent and commonplace to the people in his day and making a spiritual application out of them. And there were shepherds wandering the countryside with Christ all the time. And non-shepherds would marvel at how the shepherds do their thing. One of the things that a non-shepherd would marvel at is the knowledge the shepherd has for the one sheep. You know, if you or I were to look at a, a, a herd, herd a flock, flock, that's what they're called. I'm not much of an animal guy, as you can tell. A flock of 100 sheep, and then take one away, and now show me a flock of 99 sheep. You know, to me, they would look exactly the same. And if you were to press me further and say, well, actually, in this one, there's one missing. Which one is it? You know, I, I have no idea. Yet in Jesus' day, the shepherds knew. Uh, it's mind-boggling for us to imagine, but they lived with these sheep day and night. Uh, they, they were with these sheep all the time and interacting with these sheep day and night. They grew familiar with each. In fact, they named their sheep. Did you know that? They would give names, maybe based on the way the sheep walked or some about the sheep's personality or some about how the sheep looked. And they, Jesus talks about him being the good shepherd and us having names that uh, he has given us. He calls us each by name. Well, that's the case with sheep. One thing that's similar would be uh, identical twins. Uh, when you 
you remember meeting identical twins? When you first meet identical twins, you're looking at them going, there is no way I will ever be able to differentiate between you two. And yet I remember once I worked day and night, uh, as back as years ago, but I worked with identical twins. And after years of getting to know them and sharing life with them, their differences became so obvious to me. I'm like, oh yeah, Tom, Brian. That's how it is with sheep and the shepherds. When that shepherd looks over his flock of 99, when it's supposed to be 100, he says, where's old Greybeard? He was here a moment ago, and he's not here. And Jesus says that a good shepherd will leave the 99 and go after that one until he finds it. And when he finds it, puts it on his shoulders and brings it home, rejoicing. Friends, one of the things this parable speaks to is how precious the individual is to our Lord. One of the temptations in our day and age is to look at the amount of people in the world. What is it, like 7.7 billion? And we feel so small in this massive sea of humanity. And it's so tempting to say, you know what? I'm just an individual. I mean, there's so many people. The world is so big and impressive, and I'm so small and puny. And to feel like you don't matter. Friends, this parable reminds us of how precious the individual is to our Lord. Jesus went to the cross, and he died, yes, for the world, but he died for the individual. He had you in mind. You are absolutely precious to him. You'll see on the bottom part of the slide here, I have the word known. Uh, I want to make this simple point, and that is that even though we feel like a face in the crowd, we are known to our God. He looks at us and he says, you, I know you by name. In fact, it says in Luke 12, 7, the Lord counts the hairs on our heads. The the, the details that don't even interest us uh, interest him. The peculiarities of our personality and our gifting and our interests. The Lord celebrates those details. We are known and known well by God. You know, I uh, remember years ago, I was 12 years old, and uh, it was summer actually, and my buddy and I wanted an adventure. We wanted to pull a Ferris Bueller's Day Off kind of adventure. And so I went, we went to our moms and said, hey, we want to ride the train to downtown Chicago. I would never, I have a 12-year-old son now, would we never let him uh, do that? And yet on this particular day, my, my mom said, yeah, go for it. And so my buddy and I hopped on our bikes, rode down to the train station with our Pockets with a wad of cash, and we thought we were so big. We sat in the train and paid our tickets, and that train took us to another world. It was like rush hour. Have you been down to Chicago at rush hour? You talk about a lot of people. I never felt so small in all of my life. Here's a picture of what it looks like getting off the train at rush hour. I mean, we, you know, as 12-year-olds, are these little kids smashed between this massive humanity flowing through this train station. You know, we kind of thought we were going to look around and wonder which way we should we go. We had no choice in the matter. We were just swept away, you know. Are you okay? I'm okay. You know, and all these important people wearing business suits and, you know, on a mission to work. And 
I just started panicking as a young kid, thinking to myself, I'm lost in the sea. I never felt so small. Do you ever feel small? Do you ever just look at the size of the earth and the size of the cities and the size of our country and just say, who am I? Well, that's a fair question. But remember this, God loves the individual. And when you wake up in the morning and you wonder, Lord, are you even aware of my little adventure here? God's like, are you kidding me? I know the number of hairs on your head. I call you by name. You are my precious sheep. And uh, some of us struggle with this notion of how can God be there for each one of us at every motion? The, the omnipresence of God has many uh, important applications to our lives, but one of them is he is able to be everywhere at once. I know for us, we're limited in our capacity. If you have seven children, you're, you're struggling to divide your time and energy and focus between all those kids. God doesn't have that problem. He is not limited like us. He is able to fully engage 24-7 with the one sheep, with the individual. He loves you and everything about you. He celebrates Minus the sin he's sanctifying out of your life. And uh, friends, just got to remember that even though you feel like a face in the crowd, you are known by God. All right, that's the first parable, the parable of the lost sheep. Let's go to the parable of the lost coin, shall we? Maybe this is the one that gets the least amount of love out of the three. And I would tell you that's a mistake because it's awesome. Verse 8. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and diligently seek it until she finds it? Verse 9, and when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found that coin I had lost. And so I tell you, Jesus says, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Well, again, we see that central theme of lost people mattering to God. And when one person is saved, they're like that coin that was lost but is found. But I want to press in and seek to better understand this parable and see if we can't find a nuance that makes it really special to us. First of all, you should know that when it talks about a silver coin, the actual Greek being translated there is a drachma. And a drachma, that coin, was actually a significant amount of money. It was a day's wage. And so what would a day's wage be today? Let's just throw out a hundred bucks for a benchmark. If, if you had a coin that was worth a hundred dollars and you lost it, you're beginning to realize, wow, that's significant. But it's more than that. It says that the woman had 10 coins and she lost one. What that means is that she had approximately 10 times 100,000 bucks. And that's $1,000 to her name. This is her life savings. This is everything she's got. And if everything you had was $1,000 and you lost 100 bucks, you realize, wow, that is precious. That is significant. That must be found. Well, 
The other thing that's a little weird about this story is that this woman is sweeping with a light in her own house. How, how difficult is it, you know, if you were to drop a silver dollar on your wood floor or your tile floor or on your carpeting, you know, it's right there. Why are we looking for it? What's the big deal here? Well, a few things you should know. In the ancient world, in Jesus' day, common folk had pounded dirt floors. Uh, They didn't have the the beautiful flooring that we enjoy. And as a result, uh, floors were dirty and there was debris and cracks and crevices. And coins tended to be old and worn and tarnished. And so, yes, when a coin fell to the ground among the debris and the dirt and the crevices, getting lost was something that could happen easily. Another thing you should know, They didn't throw on the light switch, did they, in that day? The houses were dark because the windows were few. Even in the day, there'd just be a few little windows. And so even in the day, it would be necessary to light a lamp in order to search for the coin. And so with this understanding now, let's see if we can relate to this story. Uh, You know, Jesus, the Lord, is this woman in the parable who is searching for the coin. We are the coin, the one that's lost but could be found. And uh, as the coin, what would it be like to fall to the ground where there's dirt and debris and crevices and in the darkness? I mean, that's a terrible environment, if you will. That coin would feel like, man... If I were to judge my value by my environment where I'm stepped on and kicked and among all the trash, I I would think I'm not worthy of much. But the woman in this parable gets down and says, there's a diamond in the rough. And though it's a little gross down here, I'm going to find that treasure. In fact, you'll see that's the word I have here, is that though our setting, our circumstances, our environment may make us feel like We don't count that we're trash. We are actually treasured by God. We are a diamond in the rough. And friends, this is a danger with your circumstances. Maybe you look at the hardship that you're going through. Maybe you look at the way people treat you. When you look at your circumstances, it may be tempting to conclude that you are are lacking value because look where I find myself. And Jesus says, the Lord is like that woman on her hands and knees, scouring through the dirt and in the crevices, looking and looking until she finds that coin and says, yes, I have my coin. Friends, come and celebrate with me. Though we may feel like from our surroundings that we're just no good, the truth is we are treasured by God, treasured by him. You know, going back to my little story into the city, my buddy and I uh, finally uh, got out of that train station and we were wandering around, went down by the river, went through some stores. We were having a great time. And then some advice that came to me from my mom uh, started coming to my mind. My mom had said, make sure you stop by and say hi to your dad. My dad at the time lived, or I'm sorry, worked in the city. It was actually in the Sears Tower. A pretty exciting place. He was one of four partners who owned a bond trading company. And so I I said to my buddy, hey, my dad's in the Sears Tower. Should we go try to find him? 
And he's like, yeah, let's do it. Here's a picture of the base of, oh, I'm sorry, Sears Tower. I don't even know what the building's called, right? The Willis Tower. Never going there. Sears Tower. Here's where it was. So uh, you may know this about the Sears Tower. There is an entrance for visitors to go up to the sky deck and see, but on the other side, there's an entrance for the business people who work there. And so we figured that out, and we went in the business entrance because we wanted to go up to where my dad works. And so can you imagine two 12-year-old ragtag boys, jeans with holes in the knees and ratty T-shirts, and we walked in and, you know, looking around in this massive lobby, and a security guard came right up to us, grabbed us by the shirts and said, boys, get out of here. And we were kicked to the street. As we were out there, we were like, wow, we just got kicked out. And my buddy was like, why didn't you tell him that your dad works here? And I'm like, oh, I got flustered. I was just kind of, he goes, let's do it again. So we went back in, <laughs> this time with a little more gumption. And we're like, I'm supposed to be here, you know, and I'm, and sure enough, security guy, this time he was upset. I could tell he's thinking, those punk kids came in here again. He starts hightailing it to us, and he said, I told you, young men. And I'm like, wait, wait, sir, 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 I'm here to see my dad. And he's like, yeah, that's what all the kids say. And I'm like, no, not really. And he's like, all right, who's your dad? And I'm like, uh, Gary Griffin. And he says, all right, what company does he work for? I said, Griffin, Cubic, Stevens, and Thompson. And he knew of that company, and he knew Gary. He said, let me make a phone call. Come with me, boys. So we walked over to this lobby reception desk, and he grabbed a phone. He made a call, and he says, I have uh, two boys here claiming that Gary Griffin is expecting them. And he went, oh, I didn't hear what he said, but I saw it on the face. And all of a sudden, he says, oh, uh, thank you very much. I will escort them up. And he hangs up the phone, and he says, gentlemen, gentlemen, huh? (laughs) Gentlemen, I am terribly sorry for the misunderstanding. Would you please follow me? And we were like, hey, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Suddenly, like a million bucks. Here's the point. Though the world may kick you to the curb, Though the world may treat you like you just don't count. You have no business being here. What they think about you doesn't matter. Call the Father and ask him, hey, talk to me. Father, you tell me, what am I worth? I'm like this silver coin down in the dirty floor getting kicked around. What am I worth? And he speaks up and says, son, daughter, you are treasured to me, precious beyond your wildest imagination. So don't be deceived by your circumstances and come to faulty conclusions about the worth of people. You are treasured by God no matter where you find yourself. All right, one more. And this is the parable of the lost son. And due to the length of this parable, I would ask that you allow me to paraphrase and then we'll zoom in on a couple of verses. The situation is that this father has got two sons. And this one son doesn't like the father, doesn't want to do life with the father, 
this son says, Dad, give me my share of the inheritance because I want to take it and scram. Do you have any idea how offensive this must have been to this father? Well, what is this son saying by this request? He's saying, in a sense, that, uh, you know, I'm not real big on being in this family, and I'm kind of just waiting for you to die. And it's kind of like taking too long for you to die. So how about we just pretend you're dead? And you give me your money now so I can get out of here. Oh, the offense that that would have been in that culture and our own. And yet, though this father seems to have had a broad estate, he, with amazing grace, says, all right, I'll do that. And divided the estate in two and gave, sold everything and gave what the money that was you know, equal to one half of the estate to this son. And this young son says, adios, dad, and took off and went into the big city to squander. That's what the Bible says, squander all of that hard-earned money in wild living. I mean, this is so offensive. Just think about it. Uh, Wild living is the lifestyle that is diametrically opposed to what this father believes in. So this son has taken what this father has earned over a life of labor and squandered it in a short amount of time in disobedient, sinful living. It's just a terrible story up until this point. The son finds himself feeding pigs. What happens is he you know, spends all his money in this wild living, ends up without, and without money, his friends all leave him. And without money, he's got to find a job. And the best he can find is feeding pigs, and it's a gross job. These pigs, you ever smelled pigs before? Yeah, disgusting. He's covered with pig slop. He's smelling like the pigs himself. He's so hungry that he finds himself desiring to eat pig food. He's that desperate. And it was at this moment that the Bible says he came to his senses. I love that phrase. And this thought crossed his mind. It's possible, a long shot, but possible I could get a job working for my dad. I mean, likely he's just going to smack me and say he never wants me to see him again. That's understandable. But there's a slight chance that he'd give me a job. And I'll take a job in the lowest position within his estate. But I know that they have it so much better than what I do presently. And so he decides, what have I got to lose? I'm going to give it a shot. And in this glorious moment, so pregnant with theological significance. This lost son wanders home and he's approaching the road and he's walking the road that leads to the house and he's turning in his gut going, this is going to be so awkward. What is he going to do? Is he going to hit me? You know, what do I anticipate? And in that moment, the father sees him and this is what he does. Verse 20. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Can you imagine this? Uh, Where are we supposed to fit ourselves into this story? Yeah, we are the prodigal son, the the lost son. And this father symbolizes our heavenly father. Friends, though we are covered with pig slop, though we are spiritual failures, when we returned to the Lord, 
He didn't just say, oh, yeah, 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 I'll talk to you when you get cleaned up. But the heart of God is on display in this verse as he sees his son and he ran. God ran. And he ran not with a, I'm going to get him. Maybe that's what the son thought at first. It's like, oh boy, he's coming fast. This is not good. But it wasn't that at all. He ran to him, what? Wrapped him in his arms. And his heart was filled with compassion. And he kissed him again and again, saying, my boy, my boy is home, my boy is home. That's how God feels about you. Uh, friends, the passage goes on. It says, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead, but he is alive again. Do you see the secret there? Uh, friends, this celebration reveals the heart of love for the father. This, this father is like, we got to celebrate. When he says the fattened calf, this is not just any party. This is like the greatest of party. The fattened calf was what was saved for the most special of occasions. And so this father says, we're going to celebrate the return of my son in elaborate fashion. Let's get a robe on him. Oh, how good do you think that robe felt? You know, as he is just covered with pig slop, hasn't showered in weeks. I mean, he feels so disgusting when this glorious robe is pulled over his shoulders. The, the righteousness of Christ is symbolized, covers us. And the, the ring, oh, that's so important too, because the ring in that day was called the signet ring. It was almost like giving the credit card of, of dads because the signet ring had an engraving in it, the family seal. And so it was like having legal authority as a representation of this family estate. Uh, in wax seals, they'd use the ring to stamp uh, and secure a document. And so this family ring meant you are not just a servant as you desire. You are my son in full standing with full authority returned to you. Oh, my the grace of our God. And so, where does this come to us? You'll see I have the word loved here on the screen. Though we be a spiritual failure, we are loved by God. Well, one of the painful realities is that we resemble this young son more than we wish we did. You know, we promise God we're not going to do that again. We do it again, and we strive, even you know, with the help of the Holy Spirit, to be godly, and yet all of us stumble, and all of us fall, and we're so mad at ourselves for failing to live up to the own, our own aspirations, and it's hard for us to imagine that God could ever love one as messed up as us, but this story reminds us that though we be spiritual failures, sinners, the Lord still loves us. This picture of God. In fact, I would challenge you to imagine yourself. I do this sometimes. I, I, I lay in bed, you know, I, when I can't sleep, you know, I'm like, you know what, I'm going to lay in bed. I'm going to imagine that road home reconciliation moment with the Lord. I, I'm going to be the son, and so I imagine myself just all covered with pig slap smell and just awful, so embarrassed about what I've done. 
and I'm walking down the road, and I imagine the Lord as the father of that son running to me. I'll lay in bed. I'll imagine God locked eyes on me running to me. And I'll imagine God just grabbing me tight around the chest, lifting me up and swinging around and kissing me, saying, Jeff Griffin, I love you. Some of you are like, man, you're really into yourself, Jeff, if you lay in bed imagining this scenario. Yeah, maybe I have a pride problem, but this is not an expression of that pride problem. This is just a man desiring to live in reality. This is just someone wanting to be in touch with how it really is. Because Jesus told us this parable because that's how it really is. That's how the Lord feels about you. And if you're interested in connecting with reality, you've got to press into this story and think about it and realize the heart of the Father towards you. A spiritual failure is displayed in this passage. And so be real careful that you don't conclude because you have messed up so bad that God must not care about you. He does. He cares so much. He loves you. It's all grace-based. So, so let me go back to my story about downtown in the city. I was uh, uh, so excited to be escorted by this uh, security guard in this glorious elevator riding up to where my dad worked. And when the elevator opened, there was the name of my dad's company in metal letters on a marble wall. And, you know, we were both excited and feeling a little insecure. Like, are we interrupting something? We have no business being here. But my mom had told me to come. And the guy had called telling him I was here. We walked around the corner. My dad worked in a huge room that was a trading floor. So just one big room and there's this flurry of activity as men and women are on the phone making bond sales and purchases. And all of a sudden I saw my dad from the far side of the room, or more importantly, he saw me. And he was on the phone and he just lit up and he quickly ended his call and smile across his face and he turned and started walking down that aisle and he ran, almost ran he walked so fast to me and picked me up just like the story here I mean I was in his arms and I looked remember bratty jeans holes in the knees and old t-shirt but it didn't matter he picked me up put his arm around my friend and my dad's like I can't believe you came down I'm so glad you did son he goes I'm taking you two to lunch (laughs) and I'm like sweet you know this is like the story oh let's kill the fatty calf you know actually (laughs) speaking of fatty calf I kind of had McDonald's in mind you know and thought that's where we're going but my dad goes no he he at the time was a member of an exclusive private club called the Metropolitan Club that's up on the top of the Sears Tower. Here's a picture of it. Uh, My dad's like, I'm taking you to the Metropolitan Club. And I'm like, you are? Holy cow. And so we got on this elevator. We rode all the way to the very top of the Sears Tower. And I could not believe the you know, glamour of this place. And I felt very insecure about the way I was dressed suddenly because everybody is in business uh, for a real dressed up attire. Uh, And then I said to my dad, Dad, I don't know if we're really supposed to be here looking like this. And he looked at me and goes, actually, you have a point. Uh, This place does have a requirement that you have to wear a coat 
to be in it. But he called over this hostess, and he knew him by name, and my dad called him by name and asked, hey, can you line up my boys here with some jackets? And he goes, let me see what I can do, Mr. Griffin. And so he goes away, and he brings out these sport coats, not exactly made for little boys, but we took them nonetheless. And I can remember slipping on that sport coat, and it made my shoulders about twice as wide in one moment. But as I walked through that restaurant and sat down at that table and ate that luxurious food, I felt like a million bucks. I was living the story. And so should you. If you don't, you're missing out on reality. Because the Father, though you be a spiritual failure, adores you so much. And Jesus was trying to get us, trying to get the people in his day to understand how much Everybody, the worst of sinners, matters to a God of grace. And so if I could just put up a summary slide here, I would just remind you of, of the lesson of the sheep. If, if you feel like a face in the crowd, like, you know, there are so many, uh, 7.7 billion people, who am I? The world is so big and impressive, and I am so small and puny. Uh, know this. Though you be a face in the crowd, you are known by God. What's the lesson of the coin? Though you be tossed to the floor, though you be kicked and trampled by this world, though your circumstances seem to scream that you are rubbish, know this, you are treasured by God. You are a diamond in the rough, and when he finds you, he celebrates. And what about the story of the son? Though, unfortunately, we are all spiritual failures marked by sin. And we think, you know, if I were looking at myself, I wouldn't be excited. Oh, the father runs to you, clings to you, celebrates your return because you are loved by God. What you think of yourself and what they think of you just doesn't matter. All that matters is the one to whom you belong. And he says, you are infinitely precious to him. 